Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui. I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. On tonight's show, we're catching up with Niwa's Andrew Laurie. Andrew is an expert in past and present climates, and he is always on the lookout for things that hold records of past climates. A few weeks ago, we had him on the show talking about handwritten weather records from last century. This week, the time-travelling climate scientist is taking us further back in time, and when I meet him in the lab in Auckland, he has a white slab on the bench. We're looking at a fossil stony Parites lutea coral. So these are stony corals, and this is from the island of Aitutaki in the southern Cook Islands. It was collected in 2013 as part of a Marsden, and we're using the chemistry in the corals to reconstruct marine climate. Wow, now we should describe it for the listeners because sure. it doesn't look like a coral. If you're picturing something with many branches and lots of colour, this is not it. No. So it's a creamy white? Yeah, it looks like a long, long fat ruler. And rather than having a branched coral, stony corals look like a cauliflower, a gigantic cauliflower. That's a good way to put it. And so what we do is we drill cores out of these stony corals. They so have, these are dead stony corals? These are dead ones, yeah. So they were, they were cast up on the beach by some sort of event, whether it was a tsunami or a big storm. They were no longer alive. Um, they're just sitting there on the shoreline. And we drill into them, and you can actually cut them in half, and you can x-ray them, and they've got rings like trees. Really? Yes, can I see do. that with the naked eye? You can't quite see it all the time with the naked eye. I could put it under the UV light in the other room, though, and you might be able to look at it. What does the UV light show that this Um, ordinary light doesn't? Well, calcite sort of has this iridescent colour under UV. Um, What we don't want is calcite. The primary skeletal material of these corals are aragonite. And so if we see calcite, it means that it's been altered by... Um, probably rainwater and also high temperatures um, after after it died sometime, and it would be completely buggered for paleoclimate reconstruction. So it's a it's a check for us. It's a it's a first order check. And the other thing is that we can see the bending, so we can have an idea um, about where we'd like to to sample this. We use X-rays, so X-radiographs, to show where the banding is and how it might change directions, and it lets us sample these corals quite consistently at the top of. Um, a growth crest in the coral. And that's why these, these little, I guess, furrows that you see in the ruler in front of me, um, that's where a, a, a micromill, uh, a precision-guided dental um, drill, oh, has so three axis, we've made this, <laughs> and it tells us precisely um, uh, where we are on this, on this coral and with respect to those annual bands that we can see in the X-ray. This is how long? Uh, I'm guessing that that's about 75 centimetres long. And how many years does it cover? might have about 75 years. Wow. 
Yeah, it's on average they're growing about a centimeter a year. And so that's really cool uh, because, for one, there isn't a lot of high-resolution paleoclimate data from that part of the Pacific. The second thing is that it's pretty close to the core operation region of El Nino Southern Oscillation. And the third thing is that the medieval climate anomaly, which is what this coral dates from, we don't also don't have a lot of information about paleoclimate and also ENSO for that time period. And there's a couple of thoughts about, okay, well, what's ENSO going to do in a changing climate as the world gets warmer? And so this might be a, a past analog for what our future uh, might hold with ENSO. So tell me about the medieval anomaly. Medieval climate anomaly. Is that when people went skating on the Thames? No, that, that would be the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age. Yeah, oh, okay, carry that, on. That's the sequel to the, the medieval climate anomaly. And so temperatures, for instance, in places in Europe were, were warm, you know, very warm. You know, oh, gro- I got it completely wrong. So it's warmer than average. Yeah, warmer than average. <laughs> so, you know, growing, you know, growing grapes, for instance, in, you know, in England, which they're doing now, but they weren't for a long time. So we're studying this, this particular interval because it's a very interesting time in Earth's history, um, in recent history. There's also some social activity at that time. I mean, there's all sorts of really interesting historical activity going on in Europe. And we want to know a little bit more, obviously, about the climate. And, of course, in, in the South Pacific, an amazing time in the South Pacific when you, when you consider... Uh, the diaspora of humans across the southwest Pacific and what was going on at this time, the push into East Polynesia from Samoa into this part of the world in the Southern Cook Islands and then and then outward and onward and then of course we got to got to New Zealand. So the question was what was the climate like at this time? How variable was it and how did the people interact um, within the climate conditions that occurred at this time? So what is it that you get from this core and what does it tell you about climate? Sure, this core can tell us many things. So the first thing that we look at when we do the chemistry are the stable isotopes of oxygen and carbon. And the oxygen isotopes convolves a signal of the temperature of seawater and also the salinity of the, of the seawater. Now in parallel what we can do is we can also analyze the trace element geochemistry and uh, the strontium and the calcium ratio in this coral is more directly related to um, what's happening with temperature. So we can quantify temperature using strontium calcium, and therefore we can also weed out the effects of temperature on the delta O18 signal in the chemistry, and we can get to basically salinity, which in this environment we think is driven by rainfall, and that rainfall comes from the South Pacific Convergence Zone which is a really fascinating and interesting atmospheric uh, feature. It's, of course, uh, the primary driver of rainfall for South Pacific islands. It's really important for subsistence economies, and it's also the birthplace and incubation region for tropical cyclones for the region. So as things get warmer in the Pacific, what's going to happen? We're going to get more rain? Well, that's a really good question. I think it, I think it is, in some parts, an open-ended question because there's this interplay between with warming, what happens to the atmosphere in the tropics and the circulation and, and what it does to, for instance, pushing the South Pacific Convergence Zone in one direction or another relative to where it sits on average now. With the El Nino Southern Oscillation, during El Nino years, it shifts to the northeast, and during La Nina years, much like kind of what we're expecting in this coming you know, spring and summer, it shifts to the southwest. And 
there's a whole bunch of ramifications that come with that in terms of the relative risks for any island in the region that gets um, rainfall or tropical cyclones. So typically when we have La Nina years, we see the risk of tropical cyclones increase to the west of the international dateline. So islands like um, New Caledonia, Vanuatu, Fiji, Tonga, Niue, and also New Zealand, we see slightly elevated risk during those years of an interaction. Really neat because we can, we can then look into the past and say, okay, during a time when it was warmer than, say, the mid-20th century, what was the climate like? And do the patterns for this particular site, does it tell us anything about what ENSEL was doing and what the SPCZ was doing? There's this very strong interplay between the South Pacific Convergence Zone, SPCZ, and what's going on then so because there's of course there's changes in the strength of the trade winds and um, that helps to determine the relative position of the South Pacific Convergence Zone. So are you seeing elevated temperatures on these cores? It's hard to say we're still working on something called a transfer function which is a very hard thing to develop where we basically look at modern observations from modern corals that are calendrically dated and we compare it to our marine climate records and by doing those those types of correlations we're able to derive an equation that takes the strontium calcium ratio in the modern and then we apply that to what we see in the past. So you're not quite there yet? We're not quite there yet but we've got some other really interesting things up our sleeve in terms of looking at the variation of the oxygen isotopes through this 75-year record, and we can compare that to the, the variations that we see in modern um, corals, and we can make some sort of, I wouldn't say arm-wavy comments, but some assertions about how variable the climate was from year to year, and largely speaking, the, the main driver of that, that interannual variability is ENSO. So was it more variable then? It looks to be like it was equivalent to, to present. You know, like So our first guess at some of these corals, looking at some of their patterns, is like that those times didn't look too different from what we're experiencing today You know, in the 20th century. So that unto itself is really fascinating. The other thing is that this is a stage setter for the Southern Cook Islands and... Polynesians moving into the Southern Cook Islands um, in the early part of the second millennium AD. And so Aitutaki is a really important um, area. My colleague Melinda Allen, um, she was the one who um, was leading this Marsden project on tying together human histories with climate histories. And um, there were all sorts of dynamical happenings between sea level changes and climate variability and then pe and peoples coming into the region and, and using these islands and using the resources. These corals obviously don't directly tell you about wind, but by telling you about the other things you can sort of get a sense of what the winds were doing? Well, that's really interesting. They may actually tell us about wind. How would they do that? Well, that some of the signatures of the chemistry in them may, may, be, may be related to upwelling at the site. So if we have, for instance, enhanced upwelling in this easterly exposed location, it may tell us something about enhanced easterlies, whereas in another situation um, it might not have those signatures. So that's a really interesting thing that paleoclimatologists are really just starting to probe with corals is how can it be used as a wind proxy? Because, you know, the, the air and the, the airflow over the islands and the ocean is everything, really. That amazes me. Everything yeah. else makes sense to me, but that, that wind? 
Yeah, so this is pretty cool, and we've got it out right now because we're about to embark on some additional dating on it. And you can see that there are these little holes that are the size of like a large, a large aspirin that are drilled out of the plinths. So we've got two plinths that are on the table here, one which we've milled. This one will remain in the archive for all time, and we don't want to destroy it. Apart we'll from your caterpillar trench. Apart, apart, yeah, apart from the caterpillar um, trench that's um, dug shallowly in it, the, the one next to it is an offcut. And so we match up the offcut, and we take and pop a, a sample out, and we date it. Now, we've done two dates on this one. This, this hole right here is a radiocarbon date, and this little chunk right next to that radiocarbon date, <clears throat> it says TIMS, and that's a technique that's used to, to measure uranium and thorium ratios. And the TIMS ages on the corals are much more accurate than radiocarbon uh, during this time period and so we can get the the date the chronological date uh down to an order of plus or minus like four or five years oh that's at pretty a, precise at a, at a pretty precise at this at okay this so point. how old is that hole that hole is about a thousand years old <laughs> yeah it's basically sitting somewhere in like in the 11th century wow that may have been growing when william the conqueror was doing his thing so how many of these samples have you got? This mission that we had to Aitutaki, we had 101 unique corals that we sampled. Some of them had only one core drilled in them, and some had multiple cores drilled in them. So I think we've got somewhere on the order of 125 individual coral samples that are anywhere on the order from, like, a plug. Uh, that's about 10 centimeters long for dating. And some of them are cores that are 1.6 meters long, like this one or radial strips that were taken off of what we would call micro-atolls. So they almost look like a big portobello mushroom. So they come up into, into the shallow lagoon, and then they start growing outwards. And um, so you can take a radial strip uh, across those. Could you collect similar samples from other island groups across the Pacific? 100%. I'm really the new kid on the block um, when it comes to, to coral paleoclimatology in the Pacific. There are a lot of other practitioners um, in the Southwest Pacific, and, and there's a focal point at Christmas Island in Kiribati because it's right in the middle of the core operating region of Enso, right on the equator. And so people pick a, a couple of islands, and they, they work things out, and they do their bit for the, the larger puzzle. Right, so you've just got one piece and a bigger puzzle. Yeah, I've got one piece and a bigger puzzle, but I'd like to think that in terms of that piece, we've got a really amazing archive and we've dated um, more than half of those samples that we brought back from the Cook Islands and the spread of the dates march back in time we've we haven't got much stuff during the period that we were actually targeting for the Marsden we wanted stuff between about 1200 AD and 1800 and we got one that's probably sometime in you know the 17th, 17th, 18th century. Another one in the 18th, 19th century, and some modern ones. Great, great for calibration. But during the period of occupation, pre-European, it's almost like we've, we've got nothing. And but you've got older stuff. But we've got older stuff, which is really interesting. So going from these samples, which are about a thousand years old, it looks like we could get something continuous stitched together going back in time. You know, two thousand years. So to about 3,000 years ago. And that unto itself is really interesting, and it makes a lot of sense as well in terms of what we know about the, the history of sea level in and around the Cook Islands, uh, too.
And what is that history, that it goes up and down quite a lot? Well, it was coming down. Um, So basically prior to Polynesian occupation of the main island and the Motus that are surrounding the Aitutaki Lagoon, sea level was higher. And it wasn't until it dropped sufficiently to a level where, you know, the highest high tide allowed access to some of these smaller islets that you see, like, Polynesians occupying them and, and, you know, semi-permanently using them and the resources around them. So the sea level history of the Southwest Pacific as well, these corals are a very big contributor In this particular case, it has to do with more the long-term changes in polar ice and flexure of Earth's crust and the rebound of Earth's crust. So it's the polar regions. Yeah, believe it or not, there's a really interesting dynamic that happens over a long time period when you change the amount of ice at the pole and when you when you load the crust, what happens, you know, is it flexes in in another region. So you push down in one place, it goes up in another place. Some of the fossil corals that that this one is like a cauliflower head that's been chucked up on shore and we drill into it. But others are these these microatolls. They, they look like those gigantic portobello mushrooms that have grown out. It almost looks like a wagon wheel on its side. And those are in situ, and those are amazing past sea level indicators, especially in a place like Aitutaki where we think it's been tectonically stable. So we know the range that those corals of tides that those corals live in and so you can get a very precise estimate if you measure that coral that fossil coral and then you relate it to today's sea level data you can tell something about past sea level and right, especially so it's, not, data. it's not the substrate that's gone up and down it really yeah, is only it's, the, the it's water. Only water yeah only the water but at any rate like the the simple take home message is that corals that are in situ uh, that are fossil which we can date accurately, they can tell us, they, they're almost like a datum of where certain parts of lagoon used to be in the past. And so those datums are really important because they allow us to reconstruct a local sea level history. And then when you start putting that story together with other people's sea level history, you can get an idea about the dynamics of how the Earth's crust responds in these remote regions very, very far away from ice sheets, which are changing and, and can, you know, really driving global sea levels. Now, I'm curious, I've interviewed you in the past on Our Changing World to do with trees and wood and tree rings having climate records. Can you calibrate, use this new coral stuff with any of your tree information from New Zealand? Yeah. This one in particular I had out because I thought I had a, a cunning plan to link this to trees. And my cunning plan was not through the rings, but it was going to be through the radiocarbon. And there's been a a number of studies that have shown signatures in radiocarbon from Miyake events. So these are Miyake events are coronal mass ejections from the sun. And they bombard the, the atmosphere and they change the production of radiocarbon in the upper atmosphere. And it leaves a signature in the tree rings. And so there's been some famous ones that have been studied, the 775 AD Miyake event, the 993-94 Miyake event, and this coral right here, I thought, oh, yeah, we've got a you know, date. It's right in the it's right, 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 right time, 993. And, and so basically there's another study that shows that in some cases corals can be situated in a shallow enough environment where they have a, you know, they have a detectable response for the radiocarbon, and you can get these Miyake events. So I was gonna, you know, try to try to link this up with the cowdy. I feel a butt coming <laughs> on. 
but it doesn't look like it extends far enough forward in time, or back in time rather, to capture that that Miyake event. If you think about how how miraculous it is for um, for tree ring dating, I mean, tree rings from different species vary in different ways according to whatever climatic sensitivity they have. All these tree ring practitioners were doing their measuring, building their chronologies independently, and they've done radiocarbon dating. And then when they do the sequential high-resolution radiocarbon dates across what they think is year 989, 990, 991, 992, 993, across the Miyake event and, and forward in time, they all get this coherent signature. But you don't think this one can be plugged into it? I don't think right now this this can be plugged in, but it gives me hope that someday we would be able to align all of the archives. I mean, it, it ties into what we're doing for our current Marsden, which is, you know, Kauri, Kauri tree rings, swamp Kauri, and high-resolution radiocarbon dating, and then taking that particular aspect of Kauri, which is used for calibrating lots of different evidence, and we're... we're matching this up or synchronizing it with ice cores because basically the beryllium-10 production in the atmosphere is driven by the same process that's driving the radiocarbon. Beryllium-10 in the ice cores shows the same, the same fingerprint through time. So very common for us to find 800, 1,000-year, 1,500-year-old ancient Cody from Northland. And so if we do these analyses in blocks of 20 or blocks of 40, depending on how far back we are, we get a structure of radiocarbon curve that's better than anything that's out there right now. Because the, 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 the data that are out there right now that are modeled that people use to calibrate their radiocarbon dates are from things like caves, things like lakes. But with the trees, we've got true annual resolution in there. And we're able to, to put our hand on our heart and say, yes, we've got a sequence of 60 dates that, you know, 20-year blocks going down this, this chronology that's 1,500 years long. And so that's, that's really valuable because we, that means that anything that's then calibrated via radiocarbon, which has utilized the calorie that we're developing, okay, it can have an associated ice core age. So people can start lining up their evidence anywhere in the world, start really teasing apart the story about the interplay of humans and environments and how they're acting in their environments when things like climate variability comes along, extreme climate changes. And um, we want to know about this. It's an important thing for us to try to tease out because there was some absolutely crazy climate oscillations leading up to the the height of the last ice age, the global last glacial maximum, which started about 27,000 years ago. And in the lead up to that, we had these wild swings in temperature, particularly in northern hemisphere, these dense Kodoshka events um, that we see in the ice cores. And yet at the end of the last ice age, we're the only species of human that came out of that intact. So it really begs the question about what role did those sorts of episodes play and what what can we learn for them in terms of our future? What future do we face in terms of abrupt climate change, tipping points in the climate? Um, How are we going to respond to it? So that's that's one of the main impetus for us doing these these long sequences of Kauri, really fleshing out the global radiocarbon calibration curve, and there's no other place that has got wood that's as old and as good as what we've got here in New Zealand. What period does your Kauri chronology span? 
Sure. Well, we've got floating chronologies. We've got replication uh, of wood from uh, about 28,000, 27,000 years ago, all the way back to the limit and beyond of radiocarbon uh, dating. So, and millimeters. Well, I mean, Alan Alan Hogg is pushing out. He's pushed out a few, a few good ones that are somewhere in the order of 60,000, um, 62,000 radiocarbon. We had large amounts of wood, and he gets very precise dates. So you say our record from Kauri, there's nothing else like it in the world. Why is it so good? Is it because Kauri is just a really durable wood? What are the, what are the reasons why we've got such a long, good climate record? Well, it's, it's, we're developing the climate record. We've got the resource. It's probably going to take us a career to develop a climate record from it. But it's like a string of beads. The dates on the wood that we've got out of the, out of the ground and in the archive, it looks like a string of beads spanning about 28,000 to 55,000 years ago. Why it's unique is that during the same time periods in the northern hemisphere temperate regions where you'd have trees that are growing that are good for dendro and that could have provided dendrochronologies, you also had ice covering the landscape and going across the peat bogs that used to be there and scraping that stuff away. We've had ice, though, as well. Not in Northland. Northland was unglaciated. So in terms of the North Island, glaciation was restricted to the higher central regions of the volcanic plateau. So the glaciers weren't bulldozing all of that lovely no, 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 swamp no. cardi? No, they weren't. The, glaci- the glaciers weren't bull- bulldozing it, so it stood a chance of being preserved. But the last glacial maximum was a nasty, nasty time. You know, climate was very different. It was bleak. And... Um, it looks like Northland experienced some pretty dry conditions. We had fires up there as well. So preservation potential during the height of the last ice age, not good. We don't have anything between about 14,000 and, and again, about 27,000, nothing. No one has found any wood in that interval. And if they did, it would be world famous for science. <laughs> Thanks, Drew. And good luck finding those missing years. Andrew Laurie is a climate scientist at Niwa. I'm Alison Balance in this Hour Changing World podcast from RNZ, first aired on the 27th of August, 2020. You can listen again and find photos at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. We have a free weekly email newsletter. You can find the subscription link at the bottom of the webpage. While you're down there, you'll find various Our Changing World podcast collections, including Voices from Antarctica, Voice of the Iceberg, and Voice of the Kākāpō. If you'd like to get in touch or follow along, we're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe and catch you next time. Mate wa.